0: A morning once a morning I say good morning good morning to you all you saw what I did there I caught myself um it is good to be here this morning uh it is good to be here every Sunday morning but specifically and especially this Sunday morning amen and so this morning if you have your Bibles with you and I hope that you do have those with you if you do not if you're here and you're without a Bible if you don't have one you want one uh please take one from us steal one from us it's not stealing it's a gift to you so if, uh, there should be some there in uh, some of the pews or in the back behind those uh, seats. So um, if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go to the book of Luke. So this morning we'll be in the book of Luke, and we're in Luke 22. We're in Luke 22, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 39 through 46. 39 through 46. And this morning, the, the title of this sermon is, What Was in the Cup? What Was in the Cup? Now, one of the things I want to go ahead and tell you is, I told my son that I'm going to try to talk a little slower. Yes, I know. I'm going to try real hard, but I can't promise that there's going to be a point in the sermon where I just lose all control. All right? I'm going to be completely honest with you this morning. I can't think of a better thing to preach on the face of the planet than what I'm going to preach this morning. I am over with the opportunity not just to preach this text, but to know that such a text is given to a wretch like me and a wretch like you. There is some really, really good news going on this morning. J.C. Ryle has said of this text. Oh, I know what I did again. I always do it every Sunday. Look at that. This is what J.C. Ryle, that bishop in, in New England, once said. He said, the passage which we're getting ready to look at this morning, Luke 22, is a passage of Scripture which we should always approach with peculiar reverence. The history which, is, which it records is one of the deep things of God. While we read it, the words of Exodus 3:5 come across, across our minds. Put off your shoes from off your feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. The text at which we look at this morning, JC Rouse says, is holy ground. You see, the text this morning will be taking us back to Thursday night, early Friday morning, in that week which is called Passion Week. This is the time in that early Friday morning, late Thursday night, early Friday morning of what is known as the moments before Jesus will receive the kiss of death, so to speak. Judas's traitorous kiss. In which a crowd of people will come, and they will arrest Jesus on the spot. And they will do something uncustomary and uh, customarily done in Jew, Jewish uh, culture, which is they're going to have a trial for Jesus before the sun even comes up. No witnesses. This moment is right after he has had the last supper, the Passover meal with his disciples, where he washed their feet. He told them of many things that were about to happen. This is the moment between the two. And you might be asking a question this morning. Kyle, don't you know it's Sunday? Don't you know what today is? Why are you taking us back to Thursday night? Why are you taking us back on this Sunday morning, this resurrection Sunday? Why are you taking us back to the garden? Now, my answer to that is this. Because if we truly take the time to stop for one moment, And consider and understand and know what is going on in this garden. If we truly comprehend what is going on, I believe that it is the very fuel, it is the gasoline to the fire of our flame of the worship and adoration of Jesus who is resurrected from the grave. It feeds our worship. It feeds our celebration this morning. So this morning, there are three things that I want us to kind of pull from the text as we step through these things together. And number one, from this morning's text, we will see a pattern of prayer. You could say it's a dependency upon God or on God. At number two, we see a cup. And it is the cup which our Savior did drink. Number three, I want to give you a reminder. I want you to be reminded of something. I want you to be reminded of an amazing reality, amazing reality for us in regards to this text. So, without further ado, what I would like to do is, if we can, let's have let's stand in reverence of this word in which we read, in which J.C. Ryle says is hollowed ground. Luke 22, 39 through 46. And it says there, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, meaning Jesus. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat came like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation let us pray once again if we can Lord we come before you this morning and Lord we pray that you would speak to us in ways that man's mouth cannot speak there is to be any authority whatsoever it is because of the connection of this pastor and preacher to the word of God Lord we pray that your word would speak and to do things that we cannot do in and of ourselves. Lord, that the Holy Spirit, Lord God, would come and help us to understand and cherish all that is before us, that we would not depart from the Word, and the Word of God would not depart from us. Lord, do in us and through us and for us what we cannot do in, through, and for ourselves. We love you. We thank you, O oh God. Be with us now. Amen. And you may be seated this morning. So if you remember... I said, let's look at the first thing this morning. And the first thing there is a pattern of prayer and dependency upon God. Here we see Jesus coming to a place of solitude in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. What are they doing? We see them praying. We know this is an intense period of testing for the disciples, and for Jesus Christ, because we know this because our passage says so. It says that Jesus looked at his disciples in our text and says, I quote, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Notice here that in our text, he does not encourage his disciples to pray that they would not be tempted, if you notice that. Do not pray that you won't be tempted. Pray that while you are tempted that you do not fall, pray to it. Jesus is allowing us to understand and know that in this fallen world that we live in, you all in this room will always forever be tempted. Did you know this? We don't need necessarily, and don't get me wrong, we want to pray away from temptation, sure. But also pray. Pray specifically how to listen to me. A lot of people today look for opportunities to run from temptation, to hide from temptation, to pray that God would deliver them from temptation. And by the way, let me tell you everything that I just said is okay. That's good. But sometimes in that we stop to ask God, how do we fight temptation? Well, Jesus Christ gives us a model of how to fight temptation. He says, pray, pray, Jesus says to his disciples, temptation will come, it will, but pray that you will, and it says here in the text, not enter into it, do not give in, do not walk with it, do not play around with it, pray. Now church, listen, we are not talking about now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep prayers. We are not talking about God is good, God is great, let us thank him for our food prayers. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making a joke, I'm not making light of those pray, type prayers. Those are good prayers, specifically as we talk to our children and help them understand prayer. But I'm talking about, listen to me, desperate prayers. Warfare prayers. Prayers that look at the temptation dead in its face like a hungry lion looking to devour us, and we send out prayers like bullets to defeat it right there on the spot. Attack your temptation with prayer. Because when you do that, you acknowledge something about the temptation, that you're not strong enough to beat it on your own, and you acknowledge something about God. I need you right now. Attack it. Prayer as warfare. In Luke 22 Thirty-one through thirty-two. I'm reminded of Jesus Christ as He looks at Simon Peter and He says, "Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail." Notice not that you would not be tempted, but that your faith would not fail even in the midst of temptation. But the nature of this praying is not only offensive like sending out bullets in the face of a hungry lion, the temptation that seeks to destroy. Look with me in verse 42. There is not only is this praying an offensive type prayer, it is a certain type of prayer with a certain type of focus in view. That view, that focus in verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but what? Yours be done. These are prayers of acknowledgement and dependency on God. However, these are prayers in which are prayed with the desire to be in submission always to the will of God. Jesus says, your will be done, not my will. Hello, American Christian. Lord, your will be done, not my will be done. Oftentimes, we in prayer, as Americans, typically do something like this. Lord God, I want to do, I'd like to do, I would do this. Lord, would you come with me? I think our prayer is upside down. Lord God, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And Lord, can I come? Are the types of prayers we probably should be praying. That we would be obedient to what God is doing and not he become obedient to what we are doing. May it be in accordance to God's will and not for my will to be done. Far too often, many Christians view prayer simply as a lifeline. God, remove from me this trouble. Save me from this embarrassment. Help me not get caught, God. Help me not to be inconvenienced. Bail me out, God, if you are really there. And if you, are really, if you really love me, you will do these things. And if we are honest, many of us pray not for God's will and glory at all, however, simply with ourselves in mind. Not what may I learn and how can this be molding me more into the likeness of Jesus. We just say, God, get me out of this. For God ended already. Notice in our text this morning how Jesus prays. I want to say something very clearly. yes. Yes, Jesus in the flesh, he prays in the weakness of his upcoming difficulty. Yes, he does. Jesus prays, yes, he does, that a cup would be passed from him. He does. He says, save me from having to do what is being asked of me. If there is a way for what I am getting ready to experience to be done differently, Jesus says, I'm okay with that. That's cool with me. However, Jesus' prayer is a prayer that acknowledges and seeks God's glory and good over even his circumstances when he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. May we pray like Jesus prays. Church, listen. Listen. We, like Jesus, should always, as Christians, be careful to qualify every prayer for the removal of crosses with the saving clause of, if you are willing, and not my will but yours be done. One of the things I love about that weird and very goofy, uh, just outright insane Apostle Paul is that he says, whether by my life, living, or by my death, dying, what? May I glorify the Lord. Amen? Whether by my life or by my death, may I, this is the the treasure of my heart. This is the purpose for which I was redeemed. This is the reason why I exist, is to glorify the name of God. So whether it is done according to uh, what I want or desire, what I don't understand, what I can't see past my nose, what I don't know about next week, Lord God, whatever it is, whatever I'm praying, at the end of it all, Lord, I pray that regardless of what I think and, and desire, may your will be done, for that is my desire. That is my desire, that your will would be done as a missionary overseas, I'm oftentimes shocked by some of the statements of uh, underground believers or persecuted church. Oftentimes, well-meaning Americans would come over and they would say things like, we are praying that you no longer experience persecution and hardship and difficulty. A lot of times, like in Indonesia specifically, that concept is foreign to them. Why are you praying that we will not experience persecution? No. Better yet, pray that we will stand strong and courageous under persecution. Do you see the difference in praying between maybe one who's getting his house burned down every night because of his love for Jesus Christ and sometimes Americans who are running away from problems? I'm not saying that we shouldn't. Jesus himself prayed, let the, if, if there's any other way, then let this happen. But not my will, but yours be done, right? That was tiny. Second point. Remember what I told you? And I, I already said I was going to like calm down and slow down, and I lied. But if you think that was me excited, listen to what I'm about to say, okay? Number two. Oh, man. Number two. There is a cup. And it's the cup which our Savior did drink. There is a cup in our text. Secondly, we see this morning the example of the great weight and sinfulness of sin. We are meant to see this in the great agony, that's the word I use because the text uses it, of which Jesus endures in the garden, from which is seen in his very sweat, literally he's under so much duress and so much stress that the capillaries in his skin literally burst, and his sweat is intermingled with his blood, And his blood does flow to the ground. I always say this. I always say this. Do you know that Jesus Christ bled before he went to the cross? I'm serious. No, he really did. His blood was shedding, was already being spilt before he was even scourged by the beatings upon his back. This is the first moment that we see the glimpse of the blood which flowed for the redemption of men and women. His having to be strengthened by angels and the great agony of his soul in utter despair. And we see this in 43 through 44. So let's read that together if we can. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in agony. 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 Anizo. Utter despair absolute pain he prayed more earnestly and sweat came like great drops of blood falling to the ground question is in this scene in Gethsemane how can we account for this deep agony this heavy despair which our Lord underwent here what reason can we assign for this intense suffering mentally emotionally and yes spiritually let me tell you what's going to happen in a lot of churches this Sunday morning and maybe even last Sunday for a good uh, uh for uh, Palm Sunday now I'm going to get a, I'm going to get a drink of water because I might get in trouble here okay do not hear what I'm not saying okay do not hear what I'm not saying Let me say what I'm going to say and then I'll qualify it, okay? There are going to be a great many people this morning that are going to come together and they're going to come to places like this and they're going to celebrate, lift on high. They're going to put everybody's attention on all the bad things that happened to Jesus this time of the year, specifically when it comes to his arrest and on the cross. I remember once being in Texas, they had this thing called Men at the Cross it was, a, it was something that they did, they, they, had a, they had all these men, it was a men's conference, everybody's there, we went and showed up to this thing, and literally what happens is there's this guy who comes and he carries in these beams of wood, he brings them up to the stage, and as he's kind of teaching about crucifixion, and all the aspects of the, of the, of the scars, and the nails, and the, and the beard being plucked, and being beaten, and having to drag this thing, all the humiliation that came at the cross. At the very end of it all, as he's teaching this, he's shaving a cross, and he finally nails it together, and he holds it up for everyone to see. and he says to the group of men, Now Jesus Christ did this for you. Can you not give your life for him? Now I want to tell you something right now. This is where I get in trouble. That is all okay. That is fine. And while this is important, and I would say that it is, We need to understand something this morning that that right there is child's play. The cross is child's play in comparison to a cup that he's about to drink. Brothers and sisters, I don't ask about the cross yet. Let us ask a question this morning. What was in that cup? What was in that cup? There is something at play here in the garden and on the cross, that makes all this physical stuff seem like child's play in comparison, of which they are but pictures of what is really happening to Jesus. None of that is wrong, but I don't think that we go deep enough. Listen to me. This weeping, this slobbering and blood-sweating Jesus was not having some cowardly moment of fear Because he was unable to do what men and women throughout the history of the church have done, which is played the martyr. There have been men and women in history that have stood in the Colosseums and said, we will die for the name of Jesus. I know martyrs by a personal name, who are not walking with us because they lived for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I need you to know something about, as amazing as those people were, I'm going to tell you something. They did not stand with all boldness and courage where Jesus Christ is a weeping, sobbing mess in a garden. That is not what is happening here. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus was not simply afraid of the cross. He was not afraid of nails driven in his hands and feet, crown of thorns placed upon his head, beard being plucked out from his face, being beaten to a literal pulp, being abandoned by friends, being stripped naked, spit upon, and humiliated. These are but mere pictures of what is really about to occur. These are only, listen to me, pictures of the cup. He is about to drink. You see, Jesus' true agony, this garden was twofold. And all can be found in the cup for which he was about to drink. And I ask the question again, what was in the cup? Well, here they are. Here are the two things that we know flowed in that cup. Number one, it was a cup of of imputed sin it was a cup of imputed sin it was caused by the burden of a world's imputed sins brothers and sisters which then began to press upon him in a very intense manner imputed means placed upon onto you see when jesus was going to pay the penalty for a group of people his people those who were redeemed by his name he took upon himself the holy, perfect, sinless one who had never touched or tasted sin. was perfectly, holy, without blemish. And he takes on himself sin, our sin. And he gives to us his righteousness, which is righteousness means right standing. He gives us right standing before God. God says, I see you as holy. Not because we are holy, because we're deemed holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes upon him the sins that, were given, that we have committed. Jesus on this night was preparing to drink a cup of our sins, 2 Corinthians 5.21 states. Jesus, the perfect and sinless, was made a curse, Galatians 3.13. God has laid the iniquities which belong to us on Christ. We see this in the great prophecy of Isaiah 53.6. You see, this cup was filled with every horrid and every corrupt thing that his people have committed against God on this earth. And Jesus, the perfect, the holy, the sinless, and the good, takes the cup in his hand. There's something else about this cup. Two, it was a cup of God's wrath. People say all the time things like, I am saved. And I'm grateful to hear that. I love to hear when people tell me that they're saved, but I also want to qualify it with another question. Saved from what? Saved from what? We say it so easily, specifically, not only in American culture, but Southern culture. I'm saved. Saved from what? Which someone may respond, and in our current cultural Christian climate, you may hear such answers as, saved from a life of meaningless and unhappiness. Saved from poverty and hardship. Maybe for the health and wealth, prosperity, persuasion. Saved from de- depression and despair. Maybe saved from hell or even saved from sin. However, make no mistake this morning, brothers and sisters. In Christ you have been saved from God. You have been saved by the holiness, the righteousness, the goodness the perfection of a God, whom it says will judge the world in righteousness, in whom all of us have none of it. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Scripture says, "He is no pushover. He is Lord. He is Creator. He is God of all things." Listen, when you are saved. You are saved from God's judgment. Christ is sent to take your sins on Himself in order that you may have His righteousness before God. Something we, we oh we we on our own cannot do. I, I want to give you a little bit of, a, of an analogy real quick about this cup. How many of you ever been like on a, um? How many of you have like several kids, maybe two, three, four, five, 16 grandkids? How many of you have lots of children in homes? I'm reminded of uh, possibly, I'm going to set the scene for you. We're going on, a, we're going on vacation, and we, we know we lived in Iowa for a while, so when we came home, uh, honestly, to South Carolina and Tennessee, we drove a good bit uh, when we were visiting family. Think about this. Think about Daddy, me, having a Pepsi, all right? And I have my Pepsi before me. I've been drinking out of it. It's mine. It belongs to me. It's pure Pepsi. My kids in the back They're sitting there chomping down on Doritos, beef jerky, deer jerky if you're in my house, all right? If they're sitting there with their their, their Twinkies, Cheez-Its, and one of them in the back, Elijah says, Dad, just ran out of Pepsi. Can I have a sip of yours? Elijah takes a sip. Brother says, hey, Elijah, let me have a sip. Takes a sip. Elizabeth said, hey, don't let me out. He Takes a sip. Judson, the baby, he didn't even take a sip. All he's was doing is was spitting in it. The whole family gets their turn. You know they're not <laughs> they're not selfish kids. We didn't raise them to be selfish, so they give dad what's left. Do y'all see that? Yeah, there's cheese. There's cheese that's in there for sure. Backwash, deer jerky, coronavirus. Look at that. And they say, Dad, get you a swig. I don't want to drink this. There's nothing about it that looks yummy to me. I'm actually scared to even know what's growing in it. Yeah. This bottle, which I have before me, Jesus Christ takes the cup of God's wrath and he takes every filthy thing that we could have ever put in a cup. Our sins are floating around in it. You know what the Bible says that Jesus does? He drinks it down to the dregs See that's what all that floaty stuff is that floaty stuff is called dregs the unwanted last bits of what's left in a cup and I want you to see in Scripture what it says of this cup it says in Psalm 75 7 through 8 but it is God who executes judgment there it is God will execute judgment He said, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. Jesus drinks my cup so I don't have to ever. This morning, we are being introduced to a cup and in this cup is seen a picture of both the love of God and yes, his intense hatred of sin due to his holiness, goodness, and righteousness. In other words, brothers and sisters, the cross and everything that is before us is a picture of God's love. Because we do not take the wrath of Almighty God that we deserve. He takes it all upon himself on that cross. That is a picture of love that nothing on this face of the earth can attest to. And at the same time, I need you to know that that little picture that you have before us, before you, is also a picture of his hatred towards sin because he did not spare his son. He did not even spare himself. He takes the blow. He takes the hit. And the funny thing is, interesting, that in this situation, with Jesus in the garden this morning, I need you to know something about Gethsemane. Gethsemane means the olive press. Jesus is literally in the garden of Gethsemane. You need to know something. There's a thing called a Gethsemane. Do you know what a Gethsemane is? A Gethsemane is a huge, giant rock. Waste tons, and what they would do is they would take the pulp, and they would put the the olives, excuse me, the olives in a basket. They would lay the baskets on top of maybe four or five uh, deep, and then they would take that Gethsemane, that rock, and they would put it on the basket, and then they would begin to crank it down so all the weight of the Gethsemane would crush the olives. And guess what flowed out at the bottom of the olive press? Pure olive oil. In the garden. Jesus Christ is sitting there. He is praying these prayers. And the weight, the weight, the Gethsemane, the weight of the man's sin and the weight of God's wrath is bearing upon Jesus with so much intensity that yes, he began to sweat drops of blood. Jesus bled before he ever bled on the cross. J.C. Ryle once again has said, The thing that Christ's mind was so full of at the time. The dread which his feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its heat. That he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. None of God's children ever had such a cup set before them, and none of us ever will in Christ do till our Savior's gulp. Amen? He drinks it down to the dregs. In the garden... Jesus had a foretaste of what is about to be, to be, what it's like to be abandoned by God on that cross. The relationship with the infinite, a relationship that was infinitely more beautiful and close and connected than any relationship any one of us has ever known between the Father and the Son, who beheld each other's glory from eternity past. And for the first time. The first time in human history, let alone more than that, God, on that cross, will not look at his son. He will not even look at his son. God literally, it says in Scripture, turns his back on his son. This has never been done before. Remember, on the cross, Jesus cries, Eli, Eli, Lama My God, my God, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? I've heard it said God turns his back on His Son Jesus because He could not bear to see Jesus beaten and scourged. My answer to that is no. He turns his back on Jesus. Because of your and my sins. That is why he will not look upon his son. You see, if Jesus hadn't been abandoned by God like this, we would have been. It was either Jesus or us without hope. Jesus goes and he drinks the cup on our behalf. What kind of love is this? If you look with me in verses 45 and 46, here is Jesus. He's already possibly the loneliest man who has ever existed on the face of the planet. And he looks over to his disciples, and what are they doing? They are asleep. None of you, none of us, none of I don't. I don't understand loneliness the way that Jesus understood loneliness. None of us have stepped down from such a high place to such a low place as this. The step down for Jesus is farther than any one of us will ever travel. A beautiful and amazing reality. But today is Sunday. And all of this is nothing if Jesus is still in the grave. If Christ is in the tomb, brothers and sisters, death wins, sin wins, and honestly, we truthfully have no hope in this room, no celebration, no reason for joy. Today would be only about Easter eggs and rabbits if it wasn't for the fact that he is risen. The Bible says pretty clearly for us, 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen through 17 And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, everything I'm doing right now is just hot air. Stop, go to the restaurant, go find some eggs later on, right? What are we doing here? If this is not true, then why are we here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did, if he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Saturday morning, death was winning. On Saturday night, sin had the upper hand. But brothers and sisters, today is Sunday, and today Christ is risen. He is alive. If in the garden sin was imputed on Christ, if on the cross God abandoned his son and his wrath poured out, this Sunday we celebrate, this Sunday Christ defeats sin, death, and hell. Jesus Christ goes to a tomb, and on this day that we celebrate, he arises from the dead, he, he literally kicks death, hell, and sin in the teeth. You know how I know this? You know how i know this first corinthians 15 55 through 57 oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law but thanks be to god who gives us the victory through jesus christ our lord <laughs> church let us rejoice let us celebrate, let us sing. The gospel of a crucified savior in risen Lord is our message and it is found our only hope. This morning our cup is empty. Our sins have been drunk down to the dregs. God's wrath has been gulped by Jesus and he takes it all and we have more great news this morning. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Victory is ours because of the victory of our king. What can sin, death, and hell do to this, old body of death, who will deliver me? Man cannot even scare me one bit because I am in the hands and I have been bought with the precious blood of a mighty savior named Jesus Christ. And he is not in the habit of losing that which he pays for. This is my only hope. Every enemy of our soul has been vanquished, brothers and sisters. What can man do to any of us? And in my conclusion, I say, some of you can celebrate this reality this morning in full gratitude, love, and adoration. Many of us have this reality as the lens at which we view everything. However, there may be some of you who have really never truly understood all the hype. Or simply there is a mere nice little Christian sentiment to all that we're doing this morning. But if this is you, I implore you. I'm not, I'm not worried about words like this. I like words like this. I beg you. I beg you. Have you considered the cross? Have you stopped to think about the cup which our Christ did drink? Will you submit and respond and allowing Christ to be your cup bearer this morning? Or will you once again leave this room saying, it's fine, I'll drink the cup? Brothers and sisters, what was in the cup? Our salvation. Amen? Music team, won't we come on up this morning? I wondered sometimes, on Easter Sunday, how funny should I be or how, how should I do a sermon and how should I what illustrations should I use, Brothers and sisters, if, if you if you were with us this morning and you don't celebrate in the gospel of Jesus Christ and risen Savior, um, we love you. But for the rest of us, there is nothing greater than that. And you know what? It is always enough. And even then, Give me more. Give me more. Let us sing this morning together in celebration of a risen Savior.